Today on Radical Personal Finance, we talk art and the work of art with writer Jeff Goins. Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. My name is Joshua Sheets, and I'm your host. Thank you for being with me today. This is the show where each and every day we try to break down the mysteries of life. Well, at least as far as they pertain to finance. And one of those mysteries is how do you make money doing something that you love, that you really care about? And how do you make a transition from something you don't love to something that you do? My guest today has done exactly that. Jeff Goins is a really interesting guy. I was able to catch up with him recently at the FinCon 2015 conference. That was where this interview was recorded, where he was a speaker. Uh, and he's also written a new book on the challenge of finding work that you love. Uh, and it's, uh, it's really a, a useful topic as it relates to personal finance. The title of the book is The Art of Work. A proven path to discovering what you are meant to do. And I know this is something that many of you uh, find yourselves challenged by. <laughs> many of us, <laughs> I should include myself in that. Uh, many of us find ourselves challenged by how do we discover where we're best suited to spend our time? And uh, Jeff's book uh, might be a valuable resource for you. But even better than the book today, I have the author himself. So <laughs> when you can know the author and you don't have to deal with just the book, it's even better. Uh, so we'll get to the interview in just a moment before we do. Uh, right before the interview starts, let's talk about sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today is Patrick Snow, the publishing doctor. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about writing today, and writing is definitely something that many of us desire to do. Uh, Jeff is an expert on that. You should check out Jeff's work on writing. Uh, he has lots of information, lots of advice, lots of tidbits for you you. Uh, if you would like to publish a book of your own and you would like some alternative views or probably better put complimentary views to Jeff's work, uh, reach out to Patrick Snow. He's the publishing doctor. He is an expert at guiding people through the process of publishing their own book. He is actually my personal publishing coach. I hired him to work with me as I work to put together the first of the Radical Personal Finance books. Definitely been a challenge, but I'm working my way through the process little by little and Patrick has been an immense help to me, uh, essentially basically saving me tons of time and tons of research. It's a lot easier to simply go to an expert and ask an expert instead of spending hours and hours and hours and hours trying to find the answers yourselves. Uh, it's it's when well worth the time and money uh, for me. So uh, to find out more about Patrick, go to thepublishingdoctor.com, uh, thepublishingdoctor.com, and you'll be able to find out some information about him and some of the clients that he's coached. If you'd like to spend a little bit more time with him before you do that, go and pull up in your podcatcher. Uh, just navigate back to episode 252 of the show, and that is a lengthy interview with Patrick Snow himself, so you can get to know him before you get in touch with him. And if you are interested in potentially working with him, uh, he is happy to offer you a complimentary 30 to 60-minute consultation where he can get to know you a little bit and he can share with you some ideas and some information that might be helpful, and he'll let you know whether or not he might be a good uh, a good source for you. The best way to get in touch with him is text him your name and your area code, uh, area code, time zone. Text him your name and time zone at 206-310-1200. 206-310-1200. That's a cell phone number and you'll be able to get through directly to him. And I will make sure that information is in the show notes for today's episode. Uh, that's, a, that's sponsor of the day number one, Patrick Snow, the publishing doctor. Sponsor of the day number two is YNAB. You need a budget, the budgeting software that I use and love. Uh, as we talk about transitioning, you'll hear in this interview, I'll talk, I'll ask Jeff uh, a couple of questions about transitioning from a uh, day job to uh, a business. But one of the most important things about that is how do you handle the finances? Uh, it's all well and good if you are you know, 16 or 18 years old and you can you know, live on a shoestring. But what about those of us who are supporting our families and uh, making sure that we're taking care of our financial responsibilities while we also continue to pursue work that we love? Well, we needed some good tools. And one of the foundations of a good tool is a good budgeting tool. And for years, even though I was a financial advisor, I never found a good budgeting tool that would work for me with an irregular income. My income fluctuates dramatically until I tried YNAB. 
And YNAB is awesome. It's the number one most recommended uh, sponsor and most requested sponsor from the show audience. And if you'd like some more information, uh, navigate back to episode 246 of the show. You'll hear my personal story with YNAB uh, through that interview with the founder of the company, Jesse Meekham, episode 246. Uh, Check that episode out. Uh, Or if you'd like to go ahead and just try the software yourself, go to RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash YNAB, uh, Y-N-A-B. Download a free 30-day trial. Give it a shot. Put your stuff in there. Work on it for 30 days. 30 days isn't going to be enough time for you to master budgeting, but it's going to be enough time for you to get a handle of the software to see if it would be useful for you. And then after 30 days, if it is useful, you can go ahead and buy it. If not, uh, no big deal, no cost to you. So RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash YNAB. And with that, let's get to the interview. Jeff, welcome to Radical Personal Finance. Thanks, Joshua. Glad to be here. (laughs) So you have got quite the story, and I love to profile stories like yours where people lay out a plan and just simply start pursuing the plan and uh, totally transform their life. So what's your story? Well, first of all, I, I like that, you know, I said, hey, it's good to be here, which is like a thing that people say on podcasts <laughs> when they're not actually here, but we're actually really here Isn't this a lot table. better than a Skype connection? Yeah, it's great. Uh, and we've got, you know, this, you've got the, the track in the background of the, uh, the, the ambiance, people mm-hmm. talking. Uh, so um, my story is I didn't necessarily start with a plan. I'm not sure that plans work. Um, it, I like what Jason Freed from... 37 Signals, now Basecamp, you know, what he says about plans, he says, plans are guesses. Mm -hmm. They're good insofar as they kind of point you in a direction and you start moving and realize, okay, none of this is working out the way that I thought it would. Right. So I I guess in a way my career was was that. It was sort of a, you know, something I scribbled on a napkin and then started moving and threw the napkin away. Um, In college, I uh, grew up in Illinois, outside of Chicago, went to college in Illinois, I didn't know what I was going to do, so I studied Spanish. <laughs> and then That's had, a very high, uh, high productive uh, financially career, isn't it? Well, I mean, to sort of, it could be, but to complement it with an even more practical um, uh, field, I, I decided to double major in Spanish and religion, <laughs> just because I was interested in, in it. And, uh, and so, yeah, I just wanted to travel and do fun things, and so I went to Spain for a semester, and... Uh, that really opened up my eyes to the world mm-hmm. and uh, changed the way I looked at my own life and, and also the things that I was doing and realized I want to do something that has a global impact right. that isn't just you know something in my, my hometown or whatever. So I graduated college and so I've got this Spanish degree. Uh, I've got a degree in religion for <laughs> you know what, I'm not sure. And I decide to build on this opus that I'm going to uh, travel the country for a year mm-hmm. with a band and play music. So that's because <laughs> you studied music in college too, right? <laughs> no, because yeah. no, none of these things are related at all. And I've always wanted to be a musician. Mm-hmm. I, I was a musician for you know ever since I was 16 years old. I played guitar, uh, but I always wanted to you know do the professional musician thing, which I think is you know something that every uh, musician wants to do, I guess. And so I did it for a year, and that year. Um, I, I was the band leader. I was the guitarist. I drove our van. And uh, once a week, I would write an update on a website. I mean, this was probably a decade ago. Right. Uh, and we didn't call it a blog, right. uh, but that was just about to become a thing. And, and I would write this update of, here's what we did. Here's where we went. Here's what North Dakota is like, or, you know, or whatever. Right. And that was um, my most exciting part of my week, probably. I loved playing shows. It was fun. It was all great. But I would, you know, I would play for 1,200 people, and I would come back to this host home, this place where we were staying in somebody else's house, mm-hmm. sleeping on their couch to keep expenses down. And um, I would, you know, stay up late at night writing the blog post that summarized our week. And that was telling me something. I didn't know what it was telling me at the time, but it but it was uh, very telling. And so I ended that year, um, uh, kind of finished that up, and uh, uh, moved to Nashville to chase a girl. Uh, got her nice. after some after some significant <laughs> struggle. Married her and started. Uh, I was a telemarketer. Then I worked for a nonprofit um, as a marketing director. Again, you know, there's there's a very consistent pattern in my career. 
Um, and really, you know, really got this job with no credentials, no marketing credentials, but they saw that I was a writer, mm-hmm. which meant that I spent a few semesters uh, tutoring other students in writing because it was always something that came naturally to me. And so this guy, this the executive director of the nonprofit said, hey, I, I see that you're a writer. I'm like, I am? <laughs> okay. And so I, I got that job and did that for seven years, uh, first as a um, marketing director, then as a communications director. And there I learned all about online marketing because we had no money as a nonprofit. So I'm like, well, what's free? Mm-hmm. Well, the internet is kind of free and blogging, which had become a thing, is free. And so I found all of these free new media tools where we could connect with an audience and get them to you know donate or participate in our programs. And that's how I found out about online marketing. And um, as you know, as that was sort of winding down, as I realized, ah, I'm, I'm not sure I want to keep doing this. I was approaching my 30s, and uh, then uh, all this, all these memories of writing, and you know, when I, when I was with the band, I started doing this thing that Parker Palmer calls listening to your life. He says, before you can tell your life what you want to do with it, which is the plan approach, mm-hmm. you need to listen to your life, telling you who you are. And so. I, I realized when I was listening to my life, the thing that it was telling me was I'm a writer. And so that's, you know, so that's how all these things sort of collided that, you know, by the time I was 30, I became a full-time writer. And what's interesting is you've fully taken on that identity, even with your branding. I mean, you call yourself Jeff Goins writer. Yeah. So I guess you listened and followed through. Did you feel like a, a, a fake when you started doing that? Yeah, I did. Um, in fact, I wasn't, I didn't even want to call myself a writer. I had a conversation with a friend of mine around this time that I was kind of exploring. I think we hit these milestones in our lives where we start to get an itch. We're trying to find a satisfying way of scratching that itch. Mm-hmm. And maybe the itch is, I'm tired of being in debt right. or the itches. I'm, I'm tired of working a job that I hate. Right. For me, it, it was neither of those things. It was, I'm worried that in 10 years, I'm going to have a midlife crisis because what I'm doing is good enough. And I think the really dangerous place that we find ourselves in careers these days is not that you hate your job and you have to get out of it. If you hate your job, that's actually really good news because you know you right. have to do something. Right, right. If you kind of sort of maybe like it, it's like being in a, in like a not great relationship, right? It's, it's not a good place to be because you're going to settle for the status quo mm-hmm. and it will slowly kill you. And I feared getting to the end of my life and going, man, I missed it. Or getting to 40 was really my fear. Uh, not getting to 40, but, you know, getting to 40 and realizing I, I, I settled, Right. You know, and I'm, I was in my late 20s. I felt like there's still some risk in me. I can still do something new. What do I really want to do? And I had a conversation with uh, my friend Paul at the time. And he said, what's your dream? And I realized how much life had beat me up that I, that I couldn't answer that question. I said, I don't have a dream. And he said, really? Because I would have thought your dream was to be a writer. And I, I think it's interesting that, that the people around us often notice things in us that we fail to see ourselves. Um, it, that's been my experience. And so um, uh, I said, yeah, I guess you're right. My, my dream is to be a writer someday. And he looked at me and he said, Jeff, you don't have to want to be a writer. You are a writer. You just need to write. And this, this was sort of an epiphany for me because I was doing the writing on the side and I was thinking about it and dreaming about it and hoping for it. But I had this idea that like there was like a, a writer title with a capital W. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what you had to do to earn that title, but I didn't feel like I was worthy of it. Right. And I thought, well, what if, what if you just call yourself a writer and then start writing? And for me, I, I learned an important lesson that activity follows identity that before you can do something, I think you have to become someone. And if you don't believe that thing about yourself, I don't think you're ever going to do your best work. I remember reading an essay years ago by Mark Ford, who at that time was writing under the pen name Michael Masterson in a publication called Early to Rise. And he wrote about writing. He was a writer for years and he talked about, he had had that same dream as a young man. And I believe if my details are right, he was 17 years old and he was in school and his dad was coaching him and, and he was saying, what do you want to do? I want to be a writer. And his dad just simply said, well, when's the last time you've written? Mm. And he realized, well, 
writers or simply people who write. Yeah. And you cease to become a writer when you stop to write. Mm. All you need to do is start writing. Yep. And it's interesting because we're here at FinCon 2015. And yesterday in Carl Richards' talk, he made the point about artists that very few of us identify as artists. Right. once we're older, he said he does this, you go into a kindergarten classroom and ask the kids, well, how many of you artists? And every one of them raises their hands, well, we're all artists. And many years later, that's been beaten out of us. And yeah. very few of us, I think he said seven people in the room, raise their hand as, oh, I'm an artist. Yeah. And it's so fascinating because you have to believe that you are something and then do. Uh, and then, or I, I'm not sure if you just made a statement, maybe I disagree with you. Or sometimes you do, and then over time you start to believe. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's one or the other, but just doing seems to be the core, the core function. Yeah, it is interesting to me, and I think it's, um, you can call yourself a writer, and if you're not writing, you're not a writer. You're, you're a, a You're a liar. <laughs> There's another word for it. Um, and I also think you can do, 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 and never believe right. something about yourself. I see that. And that sabotages the work, too. Like, we, we, we probably um, have met people at this conference who've done that. You know, I, I meet people all the time. You know, they got a blog, and there's, like, a million people that read that blog. And they go, oh, that's just something that I do. Right. Like, are you kidding me? Like, that's amazing. And you don't have, I mean, I think it's sort of this false humility, but I think it actually affects the work that we do. Um, having a healthy confidence in this is who I am, this is what I do, is powerful. Going back to the kidner, uh, kindergartner you know, story, I have a three-year-old, so go before that, and he is like the most confident person I know. Right. Because life hasn't taught him shame. Yeah. I remember when uh, he was like one, his name's Aiden, and the music turned on one day, and we never showed him how to dance. Right, because mostly because I do, do not know actually how to show anybody how to do that. Uh, my wife could, but you know, one day the music comes on. We're just hanging around the house, or whatever. I think maybe we're even like watching a movie, and the credits rolled, mm-hmm. and they start playing this, you know, kind of dancey music. He just starts dancing. His <laughs> hips start moving, and I thought, wow, isn't it interesting that uh, we don't? We're born knowing how to dance, but we have to learn shame. Yeah. And and if if my son were here and you asked him, who are you? What's your name? What do you do? You know, all these kind of questions that we ask people. He would probably say, I'm Superman. If, you know, because he wears all these superheroes. Right. And he's like totally serious about it. <laughs> and I just want more of that. I want to go. Hey, I am this thing. And yeah, I'm gonna go like push this down when Aiden just looks at me really hard and I go, buddy, what are you doing? He goes, these are my lasers. And he's like expecting me to fall down. Okay, well, of course I'm gonna acquiesce. Of course you fall down. <laughs> but you know, like, I mean, he's not perfect. If I throw, you know, green balls at him, he falls down. He knows that kryptonite kills Superman. So there's that. So at this point, I know that you've built over the last few years uh, a pretty effective business. Yeah. But I'd like to talk to you about that time of transition. What was it like? And I know the inside scoop that at this point you left your job to build your business. What was the process to that in your mind and in your life? I, we use this term called... Um you know, make the leap. Like this is the thing that people say in these kinds of conversations. And I hate that terminology because I think it creates an idea that is false, creates this idea that if you work up enough momentum and you wait and wait and wait and sketch out your plan and and you plan perfectly, Mm -hmm. that there's this moment where you know, and then you do it and everything's great. And I don't believe in that moment. I don't think it, it, it exists and it's not what I did. And, you know, for seven years, you know, most of my 20s, I, I dreamt of, of being a writer, doing something. Because I, I would have, you know, like I thought in the, in the back of my mind, maybe I could do this someday. But I wasn't very serious about it, which is why the identity thing is so important to me. I felt like I was half-heartedly doing the doing part of it, and it wasn't working. And so when I had that conversation with Paul, he goes, you're a writer, you just need to write. And I, I had done enough of the other thing where, where I was playing the amateur, mm-hmm. where, where I was faking it and not making it. I was like, well, maybe I need to become this. Maybe I actually need to get serious. What would change if I woke up every day and thought like a writer? 
what do professional writers actually do? Mm -hmm. As your dad said, they get up and write every day. That's the only thing that I knew. Right. And and I couldn't control the outcome, but I could control the process. So I started a blog, you know, my eighth and, you know, and uh, a whole slew of failed blogs. <laughs> and, and I started a blog and I started writing every day and there was this discipline to the process. I wrote every single day for a year on that blog, publishing words every, every time. Mm -hmm. And um, it, that year I grew an audience mm -hmm. because, because I had failed a lot of different ways. I'd figured out ways to not do it, but also I think because there was this um, uh, confidence, not like I knew what I was doing, but just like, hey, I'm just gonna put this out here. And so the first year uh, I built an audience of about 10,000 email subscribers. And I, I remember coming to a conference like this and somebody saying in passing, oh, you know, you've got like a six figure business there. And I was like, no, no, and it's more like a three-figure business. I think I made like a hundred bucks last year <laughs> somehow. <laughs> I don't even know. You know, but I had this community of people and right. I didn't know what to do with it. And so I did the thing that people talk about doing. You know, I surveyed people and found out what they wanted. And I, I, was, I wasn't really taking it seriously until my wife and I got pregnant and, and we were getting ready to have our son Aiden. And I was like, oh yeah, like got to, you know, working for this nonprofit, this is not going to cut it. Uh, my wife wanted to stay home. It definitely wasn't going to cut it. And so I, I had this, I was forced to make money. My son forced me into entrepreneurship. I really <laughs> wouldn't be here if it weren't for him. Um, you know, he'll get to, uh, he'll go, you know, when he, when he asks me for money later on, I'm sure he'll remind me of that. I would like, imagine up, so. We'll make sure pull he Pull up an interview. <laughs> Dad, I know you said I, I, you don't want to buy me a car, but... <laughs> What's, what, you know, like, let's give a little credit where credit's due. Um, I'll take my commissions now. Yeah. So the first year of that was really about building the audience. Not as if this was planned at all. It wasn't. But I was trying to be intentional with what right. I had. So what can I do? Well, I know I need to build an audience. Uh, and then I know if I'm going to sell something to that audience, I can just, like, think of what I want right. them to buy. Or I could ask them. So right. I asked them. And everybody said, well, we want an, you know, we would buy an ebook from you about how to become a writer. And so I sold this ebook for like $3 and replaced and then tripled both my income and my wife's income in that second year. And so what we had done was we didn't take a leap because it took two years of intentional, not quite knowing what to do, but taking the next step kind of effort. Right. And uh, at the end of that year, my wife was like, when are you going to quit your job? And I was like, that wasn't even the plan. Like I was just trying to make sure you could stay home and be a mom for a while because that's what you wanted to do. But all of a sudden this thing became so much bigger than we realized. And so I went to my boss, who was really a mentor of mine. It wasn't this like stuck in a cubicle kind of thing. And I'm you know, really big on stressing. If you don't hate your job, if you feel like you're safe, um, that might be a really bad place to be because that's where I was. And so um, I went to my boss and I said, you know, here's what happened. And I'm thinking it might be time to move on. And I'm just really worried that I might disappoint you, that you've invested in me and mentored me for seven years. You hired me when nobody else would hire me. When, when TJ Maxx told me they wouldn't hire me because I didn't have the right qualifications, you hired me. So thank you. And he called me a writer before I was calling myself one. And he said, Jeff, I'm not disappointed. I'm really proud. And in fact, I've been waiting for this. Like I've been seeing this coming for a while. I think instead of saying, uh, take a leap, we need to replace that terminology with build a bridge because that's mm -hmm. what we did and it took two years. Wow. You've written since that time, ebooks, books. What's been the theme of your writing over this career? Well, uh, online, I think I'm known sort of as a writer's writer and I write about the writing process and that's great. I love that. Um, with the books and I teach online courses and speak and... Um, and, and, you know, kind of do those three things, online courses, speaking and, and writing um, books and blog posts and stuff. I think really what it comes down to is kind of this conversation that we're having here. I like talking about um, who you are and, and what you're going to do in the world. And so I'm 32 now and, and I'm doing this, this thing that I was doing at 27. I'm still listening to my life and I'm going, what are the themes that are emerging what, what do I continue to learn? So if when I was 12, I was drawing pictures of Garfield. And when I was 16, I was writing emo love songs. And, you know, when I was uh, <laughs> 22, I was sleeping on a friend's couch, you know, as a telemarketer. Obviously, there's good jobs and there's bad jobs. And there's, oh, crap, I, didn't, I shouldn't have done that with right, my life, right. you know, moments. But what are the things that I've had in common in different seasons of, of my life that have continued to emerge 
I think it comes down to I like connecting with people. I like creating. And I like not just creating for the sake of creating, but creating stuff that's going to motivate people to change their lives in some way. And so when I'm writing about writing, I'm really writing about, no, you're a writer. And, and what can you do today? You can get up and live into that identity. And when you know I was writing my last book, The Art of Work, which was sort of the, the grander question of how do you find a calling or a purpose in your life? Same kind of thing. Like, how do I creatively inspire people to figure out who they are and therefore discover what they want to do? In writing about writing, which I know has, the art of work went a little bit beyond just writing, but, or went a lot beyond writing. But in writing about writing, have you ever wondered or felt like you're in some ways almost running a Ponzi scheme? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, of course. I get I get those emails. Uh, yeah, writing about writing, podcasting about podcasting, blogging about blogging. Uh, you know, we all kind of sneer at these things. Um, I, I what I get I get really worried about is when somebody reads my blog and then they go like replicate that because they think that's the path. Like, oh, like he wrote about writing and now he's writing other books and doing other things, and that that's what you have to do. Um, that's that's probably not the right idea. It's the right idea for me because. Right before I started my blog, again, this was like the eighth attempt at trying to not suck at this thing. Um, I, when I did start my blog, when I started Goinswriter.com, it was just because I couldn't, find, I couldn't buy JeffGoins.com. So I was like, well, like I'm gonna write, like I'm gonna write stuff. So like Goins Writer, that sounds kind of cool. And um, so first I started writing about leadership and I tried to be like Michael Hyatt. And then second, I I wrote about marketing and I tried to be like Seth Godin. And these (laughs) things didn't work. They just didn't work. And so I would go to work as a communications director. And what I did all day long was coach writers and and I would work with our marketing team to create collateral that we would um, send out to people. And I really liked that. I really liked helping people uh, you know, learn how to write better and um, share their messages and connect them with an audience. And and so I thought, well, like, well, maybe I'll just share a little bit about this on my blog. And when I did that, it immediately connected with people. When I'd write like the Seth Godin-esque, you know, vague sort of, you know, intuitive, like, what is he saying? And I feel like I just got incepted kind of thing. You know, I would try to write that and be very mysterious and nobody would read it. And then I would... I would write this thing about writing. Hey, here's four steps to finding your writing voice or something that felt very rudimentary to me, like obvious. And people loved it. Like, you know, I mean, like four people and then that four became seven and 12 and so on. But seriously, like nobody read this. And then, you know, two people goes, hey, hey, I like this. And I go, hey, maybe there's something to that. Uh, I think there's two things that help me process this. One, I love what Derek Sivers says about this. He says, what's obvious to you is amazing to others. Right. This idea that you can just go find your passion and do whatever you want in the world and live on a beach and everything will be great, um, I, I, I don't think is a good idea. And I don't think it's it's reality. Right. Uh, but, but you know, more importantly, on the good idea side, I don't think it's actually the path to fulfilling work. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the path to fulfilling work is, yeah, finding what you're passionate about, what do you love doing, then how does that intersect with a skill that you have? Right. Probably something that's obvious to you, that's amazing to other people, that you take for granted. Oh, 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 that's just something that I do. And then the third intersection is, what do people want? Like, what, what do they actually need? How can you help people? And I think when you satisfy those three areas, skill, passion, and demand, you, I mean, that's a pretty good definition of a calling. Right. And so when I started writing about writing, that was one of those intersections. Since then, I found other intersections, uh, but I really, really like it. I like coaching and encouraging other writers and creatives and, you know, the business reach is sort of expanding. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I get the Ponzi scheme thing. Um, <laughs> but, but, no, I, I find it really fulfilling because I think everybody has a voice. Everybody has a message worth sharing. And in many ways, I get more fulfillment from propping up those people and helping them get the attention their their writing deserves than just, you know, me getting another email subscriber on my list. I asked the question just because I think it is a common, uh, yeah. you know, so, that some people look at. Totally. In every area, there's a need for, there's, there's a white, there may be a white space opportunity. And so when, who was it, E.B. Strunk, right, wrote The Elements of Style yeah. uh-huh. and sits down and writes this, it probably did seem very obvious to him. Yeah. And he made hope a little bit of money selling this book that's become a classic, but it filled a need. But the next person that comes along, the need was already met. Yeah. And so there's one Michael Hyatt, there's one Seth Godin, but there's one 
Jeff Goins. And he was a great writer. He was a literary guy. And so I look at people who do this, right? I mean, Stephen King did On Writing. Right. Uh, Stephen Pressfield, uh, you know, wrote the, uh, the, the War of Art. Um, you know, sort of more like writers who, you know, not right. dead guys, writers who are alive today. Uh, Anne Lamott, Bird by Bird. And I think the challenge there is um, to not get stuck in that, to, con- you know, to right. continue to do creative work while you're telling people how to do creative work. And I will say it's a challenge because there's that line of writers who want to get better, you know, that are knocking at my door never gets smaller. Right. It always gets longer. There's always more people want to share their message, and I love that. But I realize I can only give what I have to give, what I'm getting. And so if I'm giving, 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 and I'm not actually doing what I feel is important, interesting, creative work, then that well is going to run dry. And so um, I, I don't feel like a, a fake necessarily, but I but I see like the tendency to, to like be talking about the thing that I'm no longer doing. And that is scary in a good way. I think that fear forces me to continue to uh, create art, hopefully, and um, stay creative and continue to to kind of hone my craft. Have there been any changes in your character as an entrepreneur versus previously as an employee? Character. Um, You know, I I don't know. I don't know if this, you know, sort of satisfies that field of of character, but I think that... um, I think that when I was an employee, I did have this, um, I was never entrepreneurial. Like I was, I never, I was never entrepreneurial in the sense that like I cared about making money. Um, in fact, I kind of cared about the opposite of it. So I'm touring this, you know, with this band for a year and I made like $8,000 that year. <laughs> and I was like, this is great. You know, like I get, I have a place to, to sleep. I have food to eat and, and I get to, you know, live my dream at the time, which was play music. And then I moved to Nashville, and I got a raise. I made $12,000 that first year, sleeping on a couch, eating peanut butter and jelly, uh, walking to Walmart once a week to get my bare necessities, walking to Circuit City to check my email because I didn't have a computer or a cell phone or anything. Um, And I was okay with that. Uh, But what I realized, what I've since realized, is an entrepreneur is uh, somebody who creates opportunities, not only for themselves, but for other people. And since starting a business, and I just sort of fell into this in the sense that I, I liked the freedom of working for myself, but you know the, the bottom line stuff, the financial side of it, I, I was oblivious to it because I always had a job. I was always very frugal, so I never, I was never in debt, never did any of that stuff. The one time my wife and I bought a car because my um, mine you know broke down and we had we, we were paying for it, we were paying it off. I, I was like, we gotta we gotta pay that down very quickly and get rid of that. Because um, I was just really afraid of owing people things. I didn't need to have an abundance. I was, was, just, was that from your parents' influence or just you? or What, what contributed to that? That's a good question. Um, when I was a kid at dinner time, the phone would ring. And my parents would say, don't answer that because those are bill collectors. And at like, you know, 10 years old, I knew what a bill collector was. And so I just knew that it was like, you know, so we had lots, you know, so there was debt. And, and you know, my parents um, did the best that they could, but they struggled. And I saw that struggle, and it didn't make me want to go make a million dollars. It just made me go, I'm going to count every penny. And I was the I was the eldest sibling, and I think there's some of that in the birth order. Um, but I was just like, I, I'm not going to, like, I'm always going to make sure I've got some security. So even when I was making $12,000 a year, <laughs> I had security, you know. Right. I was saving money every month. Um, and, and so when I became an entrepreneur, I realized, looking back now, I go, oh, when I was an employee, I was very entitled. Uh, I wasn't planning for the worst case scenario. I was hoping for the best. I was being frugal as best I could, but I wasn't creating opportunities for other people. It was all about me. One of the most exciting things about running a business right now, I think, is um, not being a solopreneur, which, which I don't fit that category anymore. It's building a business that's big enough that it can employ me and other people. Probably not hundreds or thousands of people, but a few people whose lives I get to impact. Because for years now, I've been impacting the lives of our customers, my readers, that, that sort of thing. Now, I've, now what I'm really excited, excited about is impacting the lives of people on my team. And that was something I never thought about You know, in, in my 20s. I just thought, I just need a paycheck to take care of myself. I think being an entrepreneur can, not always, but um, uh, certainly can make you less selfish and more generous. And that's what it's done for me. What 
because you started as a solopreneur, just writing, working on your blog, kind of doing your thing. What encouraged you or caused you to make the switch from solopreneur to business owner? Just like laziness, I guess. Like I didn't. <laughs> I, it's ironic because I'm like, oh, I don't want. I don't want to do these things. So I'm going to hire people to do these things, and in effect, I'm going to create more work for myself because I'm going to have to hire these people and show them how to do this or manage them or you know, like now I've got to manage people and do these things. And in the short term, it's more work, right? Because you've now got these people that you have to show how to do things that are not going to do it perfectly. And you still have to make sure these things get done. And instead of just doing it yourself, you're like, here, do this thing and I'll show you how to do it. And it takes more time and it's more exhausting. I tried it once about a year ago and it didn't work very well. And so I was like, ah, like I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to you know, do the solopreneur outsource to VA kind of things. Uh, and then I tried it again this year and I really kind of organized things and said, okay, like, what does management look like? What does this look like? And we started building systems. And um, and now it's working a, a lot better, mostly because I invested in people uh, earlier on. But um, what motivated it was uh, I I initially thought, well, I don't want to do this. So I'm going to get people to do it. Mm-hmm. Now I, as objectively as I can, I look at what I'm doing and what our organization is trying to do, and I go, is does it really serve our organizational goals? Uh, for me to check my email two hours a day, which I could do if I, you know, when I get 500 emails in a day, is that really the best use of my gifts? If I were my own boss, which sadly I am, I, I love what Seth Godin says about this. He says uh, the world's worst boss is you, right? Uh, you know, and I was like, oh man, I've got a terrible boss. <laughs> <laughs> He's such a jerk. Um, it, you know, like uh, when when I. Um, uh, realize that um, it's uh, it, it challenged me and um, and, it, and it changed you know my, my perspective and so um, now it's I'm thinking well um, what what my best use of time if I were my own boss is to hey Jeff write something create something spend some time you know thinking of how we can grow the business uh, like I s- sort of serve this creative role in in the organization not not managing people. I've never been good at that. Not like watching the bottom line. That's important. And I, and I have to be aware of kind of the, like the big numbers, but like looking at spreadsheets, you know, for hours every month is not a good use of my time because I'm not good at that. And so it was, uh, it went from being probably this sort of selfish, lazy, I don't want to do that to going, you know, like if, if I were working for me, I, you know, manager Jeff would say to employee Jeff, you shouldn't be doing that. And, and I realized, okay, I'm gonna, I want to get people around me who can do that because I could probably figure it out and do it okay, but I just am very uncomfortable doing things that aren't the, the best thing that I should be doing right now. This is one of the aspects of your work that I've admired because I've been aware of your work for a while and I've seen you make this transition from, well, I put stuff out on a blog and I just kind of do this solopreneur thing. Mm. And then over the last couple of years, I've watched your business just... It, from the outside, I haven't reviewed your tax returns, but <laughs> from the outside, it seems to have transformed from just me kind of putting some things out on the internet into a business. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, you, in many ways, I see you everywhere now versus mm-hmm. before. It was just like, oh, this 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 small community of people, yeah. and that's the. I guess the stage right where I'm at when I started Radical Personal Finance uh, almost a year and a half ago. At that time, I was just burned out. I just wanted to do my dinky little podcast yeah. and you know sit down in front of a microphone in my bedroom and just like put it out there and just do that. Yeah. I didn't want to do anything else, but it took about six months for me to decompress and, and just kind of relax. And then I'm now re- I've realized that I have to uh, I have a responsibility to make a change. And instead of just doing my dinky little solopreneur podcast, I need to build a business behind it. And so yeah. that's a major focus. What were the biggest influence? What have been the biggest influences for you over the past uh, couple of years in making this transition? What's been the biggest source of encouragement for you? Um, well, we, we mentioned Michael Hyatt. He's a friend of mine and really a, a mentor, um, first from afar and, and now closer up. And he said this thing uh, to me recently. He said, because he's way into the team building thing, you know, was CEO right, of right. a publishing company, with, you know, had 500 people uh, under him at one point. 
So he gets it. You know, he knows how to build big businesses. And I kind of assumed that when he got out of that, he would do the solopreneur thing. And I asked him about that. And he said, yeah, I did it for like a month. And then like I realized I didn't, I didn't want to do these things. And it wasn't a good use of my time. Um, not in some sort of arrogant way, but in I only have so many hours in a day. How do I want to spend them? And if I'm gonna, you know, help people with that time, what is the the the, the best, you know, bang for my buck? And he said this. He said, if um, your dream is so small that you don't need a team to accomplish it, then you need to dream bigger. You need to have a vision that exceeds your resources, and then go find those resources. I remember reading a story about Henry Ford, where um, they were sort of. They were talking about the actual timeline for how um, you know he created an efficient automobile, and and everybody kind of credits Henry Ford for creating the assembly line, or, or you know sort of maximizing that anyway. And um, what they don't realize, at least based on on this Harvard Business Review story, is that what came first was the vision. Henry Ford saw lots of expensive automobiles that you know the upper class could afford but nobody else could afford and he said this is not right we need to create automobiles at this price point so that anybody in the middle class can afford them and people thought he was crazy they thought you're never going to be able to get those resources you know steel is expensive this is expensive etc um so you know you're you're just this is what it's going to cost and he said no this is our price point and we're going to have to build a system that allows us to grab those resources in, a, in an efficient, cost-effective way to get that outcome. And I think a lot of times we go, well, what are my resources? I'll, I'll find whatever resources and I'll try to do something with that. And innovation is always a process of looking ahead, saying, what's my vision? What do I want to see? And then figuring out a path to get there. That's, I think that's the only way innovation happens. Something new. Innovation means creating something new. So, you know, uh, those things inspire me way more than just, hey, quit your job and work, you know, a few hours a week and, and live on a beach or whatever. I think that work for me is something that's really fulfilling, not in a weird workaholic way, but like every day I get up and I go to work and I kiss my kid and I say goodbye to my wife and, and my son Aiden says, you know, daddy, don't go. And we've gotten really good about talking about this for a while. I sort of felt guilty and I was like, cause I can c- control my own schedule. Maybe I should spend more time at home. And you know, I'm home a lot. Uh, but, um, and I you know, randomly take days off when we go to the zoo, but uh, we started talking about this as a family and my wife, Ashley does a really good job of this. She goes, no buddy, uh, daddy has to go to work cause you know, we have a house and we have things to pay for. <laughs> um, uh, but you know, because you know, there's also, you know, people out there that, um, uh, you know, your, your dad is, is influencing and impacting and, and that's what he does. And, and we talk about it a lot, not as like work is a bad thing to be avoided and leisure is a good thing that we need to maximize more time with. Uh, and so finding work that is inspiring, not always easy and not always fun. I mean, it's hard work, um, but, but doing that and seeing other people who think like that. So, you know, Mike Hyde is an example of that, where their work is a means to achieve their purpose, to make an impact on the world. Uh, I find that really inspiring and try to integrate that into the work that I do. Physically, where and how do you work? I have an office um, in downtown Franklin. We live in Franklin, Tennessee, outside of Nashville. And so I get in the car and I drive like a mile to, to work. And it's a little um, office without a window above this cafe off of Main Street. And the rent is really affordable. For a long time, I just worked in my house. Um, but there's something really good for me about uh, going from one place to another, you know, um, I, I like uh, separation from work and the rest of life, not because the two don't really integrate, because I think they do, but because if I don't have that separation, that one mile quick five minute drive um, to sort of reset my brain from you know playing uh, Star Wars, fighting you know light, everything's a lightsaber with my son in the morning to oh, I got to send a you know send an email or something, um, resetting my brain into a different mode. That drive helps accomplish that, and then coming back even more important. Importantly, at the end of the day, um, I go, look, like I need to stop thinking about work and be present to my family. And it forces me to be present to both things that I'm doing. 
Um, so I like the physicality of having to leave home. And it could be like walking across my yard or going to a certain part in my house, which it was for a while. But now, um, you know, I just I drive to this office and I've got a, a desk and I just bring my laptop there and lots, lots of books and papers and things. And that's where I do my work. Are you creative on a schedule or do you write when creativity strikes randomly? I um, I'm both. Uh, you know, there's that, that old quote that I only write when I'm inspired, and I just happen to be inspired every morning at 9 a.m. Uh, and, and there's that. There's days where I don't want to create, and I go, well, it's your job, man, so get up and do it anyway. And I force myself to sit down, and miraculously something comes. The challenge is, because there's lots of interesting science about this, that um, we get our best ideas when we're not ready to capture them, right? Um, and I, I read some studies about this, why when your brain is doing another activity, it can be more creative. And when you're under stress and anxiety, you don't do your best creative work. Now, we've all had deadlines and stress, and you know we kind of pull a rabbit out of our hat. But typically, you do your best work when you don't have to do it, which is mm-hmm. kind of interesting. Uh, or at least you get your best creative ideas in, in those settings. And that's why you get ideas in the shower all the time or when you're driving a song lyric will come or whatever. So what I do is I used to go, oh, that idea will come back later. It never comes back. I forget. Right. I go, oh, this line was brilliant. I, I'm okay with letting things go. I used to really obsess about that. I feel like this was my magnum opus and I've lost it forever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I am creative on a schedule, but then once that time is over, ideas come, th- come to me throughout the day. So I just capture them. I just I usually pull up my phone or a, a notepad and I write them down like one or two words in Evernote. I like using Evernote because I put it on my phone and then the next morning I wake up, I pull up Evernote and I go, oh yeah, I'm going to write about that. And, um, and I use what's called, what I call a three bucket system where I've got ideas, uh, drafts, and then published pieces. So I, you know, the first bucket is throughout the day, I capture stuff on Evernote and put it into a, an idea bucket. And then the next morning I get up during my scheduled time to write, I take one of those ideas and I draft them into something that's very rough. Then I put, then I put it into a folder and I leave it there. Uh, and then I pull something out of that folder, something older, and I edit it and get it ready to publish. And so when I'm constantly filling those buckets, I feel like I'm, you know, doing my work. What uh, do you write in software or what do you write in? When I'm blogging, I write in Byword, um, which is a you know, little uh, minimalist blogging software tool. And, um, and then when I'm writing for, for a book, I usually write in Scrivener. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish I had better systems for this because I'm messy. There's post-it notes and all kinds of things. And I'm a very, like, when whatever I publish, I want it to be very neat. Right. But my process is, is pretty messy. But those are two tools that I use consistently. Awesome. Final question. If you were speaking to somebody who's in a similar situation, you've given a lot of advice uh, already within this context, but you're going back and you're speaking to someone who's in a similar situation as you. Life's going okay, but I would like to explore something else. What's your coaching advice for them of how to pursue that in an intelligent way? So, you know, going back to that little matrix that we talked about, passion, skill, demand, I think it's helpful to ask those three questions. What do I love? What am I good at? What do people want? And, and assume that you don't know the answers to any of those questions, right? Because I think we, we, like I thought, man, if I could just play music for a year, this would right, be amazing. Right. And I didn't hate it. And I think there's this whole idea that once something becomes your job, it's not fun anymore. Um, it's still fun, but it does change, right? It becomes work. And I'm not one of those people that think, you know, you can't take your passion and turn it into work, but it changes. And I think there are very few things that, there are very few passions that once they become jobs, there's the same level of fulfillment. Surprisingly, writing has been that thing for me. It's just that fun and, and that fulfilling. Um, so, so for me, uh, what that, um, what, what I would say is uh, find something that you are good at, that you enjoy doing, and do it for six months and see if there's resonance, see if there's connection. So, you know, with a blog, and I had to do this seven different times before I could find something that stuck, 
try an idea, be fully committed to it, write every day or create every day or do that craft every day and put it out there in some way. Blogging is great. Podcasting is great because you put it on the internet. People right, like right. magically find it <laughs> and you don't have to like go knock on a bunch of doors. Right. It's good to knock on doors too, but it's, you know, random people go, hey, I found this thing. You're like, really? Like I thought nobody was listening. I thought nobody was paying attention. And I think practice is, is good. Practicing in public is even better because you're going to quickly see what resonates. When I'm delivering a talk as a speaker, which is something that I never thought I would do, and I, I volunteered to speak for free at this local event because I wanted to see, could I do speaking? Should I do speaking? And when I spoke um, very poorly in front of this audience of people, but did the best that I could at the time, and people came up to me afterwards and said, good job, and wanted to shake my hand and, and you mm-hmm. know, g- gave me a, a standing ovation, which was weird. Um, it, like I realized there's resonance here. This is something that I can pursue as opposed right. to spending a year preparing right. to do that thing and then going, oh, this wasn't what I was supposed to be doing. So I think finding something and putting it out there and seeing how it connects with people is the best way to figure out, am I on the right track? And if not, do something else, but really commit to it. Awesome advice. Uh, websites, books, courses, share with uh, the audience where they can find you and where they can connect with your work and the different uh, products and pieces that you have available for them. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so the best place to go is my blog, goinswriter.com. That's like coins, because we're at FinCon, but with a G. <laughs> or as they reminded me in middle school, and I, you know, I hope this is a PG-13 podcast, uh, groins without the R, but you know, sorry for that word picture. But you'll, you know, you won't be able to forget that. That's now. good. Goins the word matter. If you, if you go to goinswriter.com, uh, you can sign up for my um, email newsletter, which we send out once a week. Get a bunch of tips on writing, creativity, business, and you'll get the first two chapters of my new book, The Art of Work, for free. Awesome, Jeff. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Joshua. Here's my question: As we go today, are you working? on the process. If you hear stories like Jeff's and stories like mine and stories like so many people that I bring on the show, I hope you hear that it's not a direct linear process. It's a little bit here, a little start, a little stop, a little step, work a little bit on this, work a little bit on that. It's not a linear direct process. But the process of doing the work can be really, really fulfilling. So get out there and do the work. Uh, you can find all the information uh, about Jeff on his website. Uh, just uh, link in the show notes. Uh, go and read some of his stuff. He's an excellent writer. You'll enjoy his books. You'll enjoy who he is. What I most appreciate about Jeff is he's a very down-to-earth and accessible person. He doesn't pull the facade that so many people do. I'm Mr. Big Shot, Mr. Success. Uh, he's a very relatable person, and, and I find that personally very attractive and very useful. Uh, and He's an excellent coach. So check out his information. Uh, link in the show notes to his websites. Thank you for listening today. I appreciate it so much. Thank you to each and every one of you who support the show directly on Patreon. Uh, although I talk about the sponsors in the beginning of the show, the primary uh, basis of the financial income for me is through the Patreon program. And that's where individuals just like you sign up to support the show uh, for a couple bucks a month uh, or different levels and send me money directly. And that's how I'm able to continue to bring you the depth and the breadth of shows uh, that I bring you. Uh, through Here through the end of the year is November 5 today. And through the end of the year, I would love to publish for you a course for the patrons of the show. And I know very clearly what I want that course to be. At this point in time, I want that course to be uh, a discussion to uh, the basic foundational framework. And I want to offer it at a really low price. And the way I can do that is with the support of the Patreon patrons. I intend to offer some very high-priced courses in the future, some very high-priced services. But I also want to offer low-priced services to help people who are just getting started and who are really struggling. And so the way that I can do that is through the Patreon program. So I've set on the milestone goals. If we can get the income from the show to $4,000, a month from you, the patrons, I will create that course. And that course, I will provide it free to all of the patrons of the show. And that'll allow people in the future to be able to sign up uh, for uh, sign up for a Patreon program for a buck or five bucks and have access to that course. So please, let's try to get to 4000 bucks by the end of the year so I can launch that in January. Go to RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron. RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron.